welcome to the Empathic Mastery Show. I'm your host, Jennifer Moore, and I'm so glad you're here. This is a place where we talk about what it means to be highly sensitive and empathic, how this impacts all aspects of our lives, and we explore tools, resources, and solutions so we can shift from absorbing all the thoughts, feelings, and energy of the world around us to being beacons for calm, love, and healing. Hey there, everybody. So you might notice that today is not, well, if you're listening to this when this first comes out, you might be noticing that today is not the usual air date for the Empathic Mastery Show. And that is because my dear friend, Chris Ferraro, her latest book is coming out or has come out today. Your difference is your strength. So Chris Ferraro, this is not her first rodeo over here on the Empathic Mastery Show. We've had her here before. And because she's just so awesome, I love to bring her back. And what better time to bring her back than now when her third book is debuting. So Chris Ferraro is an author, energy healer, and teacher on practical healing, emotional alchemy, manifestation, and spirituality, blending ancient With cutting-edge principles and practices, Chris teaches how to clear past wounds and create a flourishing future. She is an accredited certified EFT practitioner and a licensed spiritual practitioner with a private practice for over 15 years. Her books include the number one Amazon bestseller, Energy Healing, an introduction to energy psychology practices and manifesting... Her latest is the book I just mentioned, Your Difference is Your Strength, and it's debuting today, which is October 3rd, 2023, if you are catching it at any other time. Chris, welcome back. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me back. And I feel like you've been with me celebrating the debut of each of my books. And so Now this just feels like a beautiful tradition that we get to come together and do this together. Exactly. That's the way I think of it too. It's like, we just get to celebrate your books and your books are awesome. Like your books are just, they are delicious and they are, they're practical, but they're also spiritual and there's just so many different pieces of it. Now I know that for you, one of the things you've talked about in some of your social media and everything is just that this was probably in some ways one of the harder books because this is really about your vulnerability, your like, you know, acknowledging your differences, acknowledging what it was like, and, you know, acknowledging what it's like to be a kid who is an outlier, who is on, who is not the same as other kids. So how about we start at the very beginning and talk about what it was like for you being a different person, being a different kid? As early as I could remember, I just felt different. I didn't have any words or concepts for it. I felt different than my family members. I felt different than the world around me. And then later on, there were all sorts of more obvious differences in me. So I was always a very, very large person, um, even from a very young age. I recently saw a photo of myself when I was two and a half and I looked like a six-year-old, you know? Mm. So I had an uh, developed an unconventional body. I was built like my father, who was a linebacker, who was a big man. And I was a big kid, a big girl. 
And so that became an obvious um, draw to how other people witnessed my differences. I also had a real mystical bent. So and when other kids had invisible friends, for me, I talked to the saints. Those were my invisible friends. And my parents were had me late in life at a time when they were not interested in having any more children. They already had three other kids that were a lot older than I was. And so I was kind of left to my own devices to really raise myself. And so I was alone a lot as a kid. And so I was always looking to the unseen world to be a place of safety and stability for me. And, and so it just grew from there that I was always the oddball, the odd man out, the misfit, the kid that wasn't accepted. I started getting picked on in kindergarten, if you can believe it, half day. Oh, I can believe it. (laughs) I think I started getting picked on in nursery school. So yeah, Yeah, half day program and they could still fit it in. It's the first time that I was ever called fat. It was the first time I was ever called a weirdo. Um, And so that just progressed as I progressed through school. So there was always a sense of being excluded and being rejected. Uh, I was also incredibly clumsy. I was always forever not knowing my space, how Mm -hmm. much space I took up. So I would walk through a doorway and I'd hit my shoulder on the side of the door. Uh, I'd run into things. Uh, I have a huge scar in the middle of my eyebrow where I cut open my forehead once. I couldn't do normal little kid things like, say, jump rope. Mm-hmm. Um, couldn't get the timing right. So yes. I'd always be doing these sort of lumbering jumps and I would land on the rope instead of in between the rope. Oh. So I wasn't invited to a lot of uh, play dates and that sort of thing. So it just sort of grew from there. But I recognize that the understanding was before any of that stuff was made clear or anybody even around me was treating me differently. There was something inside of me that felt different. Yeah. Well, and I want to, you know, something that I've heard from a number of people who are larger people and who especially are like outside of the 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 growth norm, like you said, you were you looked like a six year old at two and a half is that it adds another level of pressure because people expect you to behave like a six-year-old if you look like a six-year-old. And so one of the things I've heard from, I've heard from a number of people who are on the large side is that there are a lot, there's a lot of pressure to be more mature, to behave in a way. And so there's a certain amount of like, you're blamed and made wrong for your natural developmental stage and, you know, so I sort of wonder, I mean, it sounds like there was also sort of like the whole kind of spatial relation. I totally relate. I was, you know, like, you know, that whole thing of like somebody throws a ball and your hand goes up after it goes past your head. Right. Like just, you know, <laughs> there, there's just that eye hand coordination, body, eye, you know, eye body coordination, just not there. But I wonder, I just was thinking, like, I imagine that the fact that you looked so much older than you were probably added a whole other level of pressure to be have it together in a way that at two and a half or five or whenever you just couldn't. Oh, that's 100% true. And I think it did make me be older than my chronological age. Like one of the things that I've been working on developing in my, you know, middle ages now is having fun. 
mm-hmm. is is being able to have fun and to play because I don't think that that was ever a part of who I was as a very young child. I didn't have a carefree, lighthearted childhood. And so I was definitely old be, beyond and before my years. I also had kids opening up to me about their problems. So even yes. though I wasn't loved and accepted and enamored, I remember as early as first grade that when we'd be in free time, it was like I felt like a Lucy in the Peanuts cartoon, the five cent psychiatrist. People would pull up a chair and start talking to me about stuff that was going on in their lives. And I remember being able to give them advice that was valuable. So there was something different about me in a lot of ways. And that was maybe one of the more positive ways is that I was respected for my advice and my guidance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can relate to everything you're saying here. I had no clue how to have fun. I was such a serious child. And And also just that thing of, while the kids might not necessarily include me in their reindeer games, if they needed to talk about the other reindeers, they would come and talk. That there is just, yeah, you know, that there is that quality of like, they, you know, you may not be in the popular group, but if they need to talk to somebody, we're the ones that they're going to go, you know, confide in and everything. I'm sure we have probably many past lives where we were the healers that lived on the outskirts of the village that everyone went to, but nobody, but everybody in public would, you know, throw tomatoes at us. And exactly. Then went to yeah. us for help. I'm sure that, yeah. that was the case for us both. Yes, definitely. And not to mention other kinds of places where other kinds of of experiences where everybody patronizes you, but but they don't admit to it. And on Sunday, you know, in church on Sunday. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So um, I love that you're talking about how at this point in time, you are now starting to claim fun and starting to claim delight, you know, that you're finding your way. I'm wondering, like, just thinking about, you know, the opposite side of it, like, what do you think it was it? Do you think it was just your nature to be very, very serious and kind of an old soul and not have fun? Do you think it was like a combination of like family dynamics? Like, I think it's all of the above because I remember being told all of the time when I was a child that I was an old soul before I could have any concept of what that meant, that there were people that just sort of knew they'd take a look at me and go, oh, yeah, this one, she's an old soul. So I think that there's a truth about that, that so that those of us that are old souls probably come in with some level of maturity built into us. You know, I also think that I was in a state of hypervigilance. Mm-hmm. You know, I was being bullied at school. You know, home was an insensitive environment for a highly sensitive child. Um, and so there was a lot of hiding. There was a lot of hanging out in the closet. There was a lot of going under the bed. Um, you know, can't be really fun and lighthearted when you're not feeling safe. Absolutely. Can't be lighthearted when you're not feeling safe. So, I mean, truer words have never been spoken. So I'm thinking about, I, you know, you, you and I talked about before we jumped on to or turned on the recording, we were talking about just like doing a bit of a deep dive on bullying. And 
I'd really love to talk about, like, I know the ways that bullying has really affected my life and impacted a lot of, like, I can just see a through line of the ways that it has acted as like an emergency break, that it has been like a paralytic and has really stopped. But I'd love to hear you talk about like, I guess, so I want to hear about like kind of what conclusions did you form about yourself as a result of that experience? And then two, how do you, like how did being bullied ripple forward into your life? What are the consequences of this experience? Or of these, this experience implies that it was a singular event, and we know that it was a, it was like like a condition. It was it was more of a, a, a you know a situation where you were constantly being bombarded by that. And so, like I guess I'm just thinking, like, how did it ripple out? So, question number one: What conclusions did you form about yourself as a result of this? How did it impact your perception of yourself? And then number two. How did it ripple forward? And do you see it affecting you to this day? Uh, Well, I'll just start with saying absolutely, yes, I see it affecting me to this day. The Some of the conclusions that I drew was that I was inherently wrong or bad in some kind of way. So it led to a deep sense of shame a and 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 a belief that that was unfixable unchangeable that that I was just made wrong or bad hmm. so that was one of them um the flip side of that is that I would have to change and become perfect to be loved and that was a really big one there were the years that I gave up and kind of gave into my true misfit essence because I was exhausted. And then there were years when I would rally and try to make myself better, worthy, good, more acceptable in so many different ways. Um, And so I kind of um, went back and forth between those two states. There'd be the FU rebel, I'm going to shave my head. You really going to like me now? See the spikes on my leather jacket? I'll beat your ass. There was that part of me that said, I don't want your acceptance anyway. I'm going to embrace my ugliness and all of it. And then there was the times I was desperate for love and acceptance and thought that I'd be able to get that by being different, by by somehow becoming more attractive, more acceptable. Of course, this affected my body and dieting. Um, I was placed on my first diet when I was age seven, and I had to have daily uh, weigh-ins and my weight was posted on the refrigerator for the entire family to see. And, And that was a number of diets that I was subjected to while I lived with my parents. And then there were all the diets that I subjected myself to. So I I harmed my body and my metabolism in a lot of ways, doing a lot of crazy things that I thought were going to be the answer. Faster Uh, cleanse ever? (laughs) Yeah, that was was, uh, definitely up there with one of them for sure. Felt like I was out of my mind when I did that. (laughs) Mm So... You know, there was all of those things and there was all of these, there was also a belief that I would never be happy, uh, that I would never be able to achieve, 
Um, I think around the age of 12, I kind of just decided I was going to accept my lot in life and that I was going to become one of these invisible kind of people that was going to, you know, work as a librarian in a nice, quiet place surrounded by a lot of safe books, but not um, ask for anything more. So there was a lot that came out of that. And I also want to say the bullying did not end in childhood. It started in kindergarten and it went all the way through up through my junior year of high school. I do not know why my senior year of high school, everyone just laid off. I guess at that point they were like, well, this bitch ain't never going to change. So I, there was some level of acceptance, I guess, that happened. Or I guess maybe people are thinking about their senior year and leaving. Yeah, I was thinking in some ways also, I think the senior year, and ironically, I left high school in my junior. I graduated in my junior year, so I never got the relief that senior year had. But I think I think in some ways it's like a lot of pressure is off in senior year. It's kind of like you gotten through it. And I think and so people are not going to act out as much because they're just not under the same level of pressure. Right. I don't know. That's just a theory. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. probably something to it. I mean, it markably changed, remarkably changed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, but later on, it's something that could come up in friend groups. It absolutely came up on jobs. Okay. When I worked in social services for 15 years, that is a very high pressure, stressful environment. Uh, a lot of the people working there, myself included, were struggling as much, if not more so than the people that we were trying to serve. And those things, sometimes those things get directed out in odd ways. I mean, there were times that I had to uh, go into HR meetings. Because someone was bullying me and my immediate supervisor, and it got really dark and really bad. And so that, you know, thankfully it was handled and it did change. But it was something that this was a person we had always been friendly with, both she and I. Um, someone that we liked. She was really funny. We enjoyed her. And something snapped in her and we looked like easy targets. I would also say that my boss was also a misfit to trailblazer. She was also someone who did not fit in. And I was someone who didn't fit in. So the two of us were well matched to work with one another. Uh, we weren't so well matched for the agency for which we worked. Mm -hmm. And so that was a very, I mean, it was actually very, very scary. And the times that those things came up, brought up a huge amount of fear and immediately going into the fight or flight response, even though my life was not in danger, nobody was putting a gun to my head, but that high reactivity would come up. Right. It also contributed a great deal to social anxiety. So I had probably always been an anxious child. And then when I was eight, between third and fourth grade, I was moved from the school that I had been in into a different school with a program for child geniuses. Mm -hmm. And I, you think that, oh, well, there's all these child geniuses all in one classroom, like all the geeks and all the teachers' pets from other schools have been put into this one classroom, that it, there would be safety there, but there was no safety there at all. I had undiagnosed learning disabilities. I had severe ADHD. I could not focus for moments at a time. I also had an auditory processing disorder. Mm -hmm. 
people would say something and my brain took time to interpret the sounds that were going through my ear. So throughout my entire childhood, I was constantly saying, what, what, what? And then as I said, what, my brain would then catch up to what had been said, and then I'd answer. So then I got in trouble for saying what all the time and acting like I couldn't hear. So I am go into an environment that's highly competitive. I'm going into an environment where there are kids being groomed to go to Ivy League schools. And I was in a middle class family, but both of my parents came from strongly working class backgrounds. And there was not an expectation ever that I was going to go to ever some Ivy League school. In fact, they would have thought that was a big waste of money. You know, they were already like, yeah, you'll go to junior college and maybe you'll become a teacher. That was really their goal for me. I had no support for homework help. I didn't have tutors. And so in that, I started developing severe anxiety. I didn't sleep for weeks at a time because I couldn't get my work done, because I was um, desperate for um, being able to get good grades, which I had previously gotten, and I couldn't get good grades in that school. There was a ton of pressure on me at that time, which morphed into social anxiety. So throughout college and my 20s, all the way up until uh, my early 30s, I could not return phone calls. If I was on a bus and you had to clink that little tape to let the driver know you needed to get off at the next stop, I was unable to do that. I'd get off at a different stop and then I'd walk back to where I needed to go. I would be paralyzed in social situations. I would feel like I was having signs of a panic attack going into a party or meeting new people. Um, and I definitely sabotaged all kinds of creative things that were really important to me. Uh, I write poetry. I was a spoken word poet. Um, and I would go and perform in coffee houses and New Yorkian in New York City and other places. Um, but I would be in gripped in terror for a week before the performance, do the performance then I'd feel this exhilaration of all this adrenaline moving through me. And then I wouldn't be able to sleep again. It took a, such a toll on me, I quit. Mm. So, you know, there was a lot that this was costing me. And I'm sure a lot of it had to do with being rejected, ridiculed, humiliated by other people. I wonder, as you were speaking about not liking to do phone calls, I, again, I can so relate to this. And what I know, I mean, I'm wondering if some of it is also if you are if you are have auditory processing issues that phone calls require you don't have any of the other visual cues and you are listening like people are talking to you, but you're supposed to be processing information pretty fairly quickly. I know for myself and my husband doesn't like David is just like, why can't you make a phone call? And the thing is. If I have enough spoons in the drawer, I can pick up the phone and I can call somebody and I can set an appointment. I can get something going. But if I don't have enough spoons in the drawer, it's like I cannot mentally process it. It's like it's just too much for my brain to parse out. So I wonder if this is like phone calls is like the perfect storm of social anxiety and sensory processing issues where it's like it, it just requires more than. You got at certain points in time. I don't know if that oh, rings true I'm, for you. 
I'm sure that all of the levels of anxiety, nervous system dysregulation, and all the different facets of it were certainly worse during uh, times of high stress and overwhelm. And, you know, I often share with people that there's a line and there's a certain line that if I cross over into overwhelm, then then all bets are off. Once I'm in that overwhelm zone, then I'm going to procrastinate. There's going to be piles of laundry that are stacking up that aren't being folded. And and once I cross over that line, it's very it takes me a very, very long time to get back over onto the safe side. Absolutely. And well, and I don't know if this is true for you. For me, I don't always know that I'm crossing the line until I cross it. Like we actually watched the stupidest movie ever last night, The Pope's Exorcist, or you know, the Pope's Exorcist, that Russell Crowe. I will not recommend it. It was just ridiculous. And David had really wanted to watch it. So I was like, okay, fine, we'll watch it. And I managed to get through most of it. But the way that the movie was created is that it sort of ramps up in bombasticness. And by the end of it, it is just like they jump shark after shark. And it just gets more and more loud and more and more ridiculous, but also more and more violent and more and more intense. And all of a sudden, by the end of it, and the fact that I had had a little bit too much chocolate probably contributed to it too. But by the end of it, I was suddenly just ready to rip everything, like rip heads off. I was so like, and I know that I've noticed this, that it's like, I don't always recognize when I'm hitting that point of no return. I don't until I'm suddenly like, oh, I fell over the cliff again. And now I have to backpedal and repair. Yeah. It's often the case for me too, or I'm getting up to the line and there are some things on my schedule that can't be changed. I have a writing deadline. I have something that I have to do that can't be rescheduled. Um, or there's some activity or something that has to be done. In fact, I find this happens often that I get right up close to the line and then I start looking at my calendar and there's a lot of things that are, it's the worst possible case scenario of what is on, what the tasks are that are on my list. And then I do those things because I quote unquote have to do them and then boom, I'm in the danger zone and that's right. it. Right. Well, and one of the things um, I did that I did not know that this was a thing until I started do going down kind of um, a bit of a rabbit hole in, you know, around neurospicy, neuro, you know, and particularly ADHD and the tendency time blindness. And like, because that thing of what you're talking about is, is that kind of like, you don't really know that the deadline is coming up until all of a sudden the deadline is just looming in your face. And I, you know, is it, is it procrastination or is it time blindness? Because I think for me, having more information about traits of certain, you know, neuro, neurodivergent trait has been really helpful too, in the sense of going, oh, this is not, this is not willful behavior. This is not just being like, you know, like you're just a little shit. This is like my brain doesn't process things in the way that ordinary people do. Well, I diagnosed myself with ADD when I was in my 20s and through a Oprah show. 
Mm. So it was a doctor who had put out a book called Driven to Distraction. Yes. And Oprah had him on along with people that had ADD who were talking about their story. And I remember beginning to watch the show and I kept moving my chair closer and closer and closer to the TV until I was right up against it because the alarm bells were going off inside of my whole body. And I went, oh my God, this is an actual thing. And other people have it, you know, but this was in the 90s, right? So what was even really known and what kind of treatment was there? And and, and my skill set was extremely limited at that time. Um, so there wasn't really much I could do about it. But it did give me an understanding. And within that understanding, I started to be gentler with myself about my limitations. Mm. I love, I love that, that having that information allowed you to start to be gentler with yourself. Right. Because now suddenly it was a thing. It wasn't that I was lazy. It wasn't that I was disorganized. It wasn't that I was a procrastinator. It wasn't that I was a bad person. It wasn't that I was ineffective. It wasn't all of these judgments and things. It wasn't that I was stupid or wrong or bad, that it was an actual brain condition. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. That, and that my case was apparently a textbook case of it. Mm. And I think that that's the power of sharing our stories Yes. So it because it would have been one thing if she had just had the author on. But the fact that there were people that were on there talking about their struggles and how those struggles were for them. And I've always related most to storytelling. And in a lot of self-help books, you know, they'll introduce a concept and then they'll give an example of that concept. And I do that the same in my own books. Well, the reason why I follow that along is because there were times I would read a concept and I didn't quite get it. But then when I read the example, I'd go, oh, yeah, now I understand it. It's the healing that comes with storytelling. And so that's why I think it's important for us to be vulnerable and put our stories out. And for me, this book is very much a vulnerable book. I know that you read an advanced copy, so you had a chance to look at it. There's a lot of revealing of my child self, of the pain that I went through, of the times when I've been ostracized and picked on, even in recent years, even within the field that you and I are both in, it happens professionally, or even with other healers, and being able to also out myself spiritually in some way, too. There's a lot of those revealing of that, those stories as well. But I'm doing it all so that there's someone out there who can read it and go, oh, my God, me too. Yes. Yes. Well, and and I love, like, in my experience, storytelling is the way that as human beings, we can relate to each other. But storytelling has its greatest power when we're telling the real story and sharing the dirt, you know, the hot mess details, as opposed to the theory or the, you know, glazing over the top. And um, that's one of the things that I just really sincerely appreciate about you is your 
authenticity, your rawness, your realness, and your willingness to share your story. Which leads me to sort of the next question, which is how did you find the way to reveal your story? Like, what did you, like, how could you, how could you do that? And I, you know, and I mean that not in the, how could you do that? But really like, how could you do that? How did you do that? What did it take to be able to be that vulnerable and to share your story? I'm so glad that you asked that because I had spent so many years trying to be the perfect person, the perfect girlfriend, the perfect employee. Um, A lot of times because I didn't want abuse, right? If I'm, if I'm just the perfect woman, then the person I'm involved with is going to really love me and it's going to go really well. If I'm just the perfect employee, then I won't get yelled at and no one's going to give me a hard time. And then I'll be able to progress and I'll be successful. It did not work in either one of those situations and it didn't work anywhere else that I tried it. Okay. Mm -mm, mm -mm. It's exhausting too. Oh, it, it is. It's absolutely exhausting. And I would be incredulous watching as I would be left for someone who wasn't even on my level. Right. And I'd be like, what? But I was this and this and this and this. And and didn't he want that? Why would he want her? And in the job, I would see time and time again, people who didn't work as hard as I did, didn't contribute the way that I contributed, didn't show up the way that I showed up being promoted ahead of me, above me. Okay. It didn't work in any way. And so how I started this process is about 20 years ago, I started really delving into shadow work. So I, because I... Let's go back for a second. Can you define, people throw this term around all the time. I hear people talking about shadow work constantly. Before we go into the the experience of doing shadow work, can I just get a definition? How do you define shadow work? I define shadow work as taking the pieces and parts of ourselves that we've repressed and projected onto others and reintegrating them back into the wholeness of who we are. So it's about retrieving those qualities, those aspects of our personality, of our habits, of the way that we are, that we cannot see in ourselves. And so we think that they're offensive and bad and wrong. And so we project them out onto other people and shun them for having them. And it's about identifying those, neutralizing the intensity of the hatred of those parts of ourselves so that eventually those parts can be retrieved, integrated back into the wholeness of who we are and loved. So that not only do we get to own the parts of ourselves and and the things that we have judged as wrong or negative, but all of those parts come back with a lot of gifts. And so it's about integrating those gifts back in. Mm. Okay, so you were saying, so 20 years ago, you started to do this shadow work. Yeah, I started with um, a classic uh, self-help book called The Dark Side of the Light Chasers. Yes, uh, Debbie, Debbie Ford. Ford. 
Yeah. And later, Debbie Ford would become a spiritual teacher for me. She was one of my most powerful teachers. And I remember reading that book and times I just would throw it across the room and hit the wall because I thought there's no freaking way I am doing any of these activities or doing any of this. But I kept returning to it again and again. And I did the exercises in the book and I started to neutralize and retrieve back those things that I had been projecting and judging and shaming other people for that were really just disowned parts of myself. Mm. And the more that I did it, the freer that I became. Now, I did this work for a long time without revealing it to other people, without being um, out about it, let's just say. I was trying to own my insecurities. I was trying to own my criticisms that I had of other people and of myself. There were so many aspects of myself that um, I just couldn't acknowledge for deep fear right? That if I brought them out into the open, that I would be shunned even further, except the exact opposite happened. The more that I reclaim those parts and those aspects of myself, the gentler life became and the gentler people became towards me because I was owning my own stuff. I didn't have to take it out on other people. And um, I I know that our energy of wholeness is something that people can feel on a really deep, silent, energetic way. And so that's where it all began. And then, you know, I was doing this work part time as I was working full time. And eventually I became fully self-employed doing this work. And I had started public speaking, which was not something that I wanted to do, by the way. It was a call from spirit that I did not want to answer. I kept getting offers to speak. I kept getting people asking me to speak at different conferences and different events. And I looked up to those speakers. I looked up to Debbie Ford and Marianne Williamson and Iyanla Van Zandt and all these people that I had been studying with that were like the greats, you know, in self-help. I didn't think that I was on ever could be on that level at all. And yet I kept getting the offers and some part of me kept saying yes, while the rest of me was screaming, no, there was some part of me that was saying yes. And I'd go through all kinds of trials and tribulations internally, crying, waking up in the middle of the night. Oh, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. And then I would stand up and I would do my talk and something would flow through me. And there were times I found myself revealing some really intimate things, memories, wounds, um, problems that I've had, struggles that I've had in my life, um, and would bring them out into the open in a public forum where I'm being recorded and have a microphone on. And afterwards, I would feel relieved. I would feel like I had done some kind of a public confession. And I really fully believe that confession really did start as a holy healing practice. Yes. Because we all carry so much shame. Yes. We all carry so much blame. We all carry so much self-criticism that I believe it originally came out of going to another person and saying, here's all my stuff. 
and that person holding the space and saying, you are loved and you are a piece of God still. Yes. And in that, it would free that person of what they had brought into that confessional. And, you know, I think it is man that takes spiritual concepts and ideas and sometimes bastardizes them and uses them to abuse power with, which I think can sometimes happen in that case. But I think it came out of healing. And so I was having these tribunals, these public healings, and I just started coming clean with people. So if I felt socially awkward at an event, if I tried to repress the social awkwardness and tried to come off as cool, I would stick my foot in my mouth over and over and over again. It was absolutely horrifying, Jen. So I started taking a different approach. I started saying, I'm feeling really awkward. I'm yes. feeling uncomfortable. I really look up to you and I want to impress you. And, I, and I'm finding myself tripping all over myself because I'm trying to impress you. That people know what to do with because yes. it's truth. Yes. Right? Well, it's endearing. I remember when I realized that it was much better to walk into a space and just be honest about what I'm feeling. And like that whenever, yeah, that there's something so powerful about admitting our vulnerability and just being like, I'm uncomfortable, I'm scared, I'm, I don't know what to say, as opposed to trying to act like, you know, just like we're too cool for school and kind of curating our reality. I'll go back to something that because i i was thinking like i just thought of a nugget about you know in terms of the idea of shadow work and knowing you i i know we're on the same page about this but i was thinking about you know the the challenge within the new age world around anger and the the the, the line between your shit gets stirred up and you're reacting out of your stuff and you need to own and look at it versus having a very legitimate reason for being pissed off or angry and expressing that to uh, somebody who's behaving badly. And one thing I've sort of seen with kind of like the, you know, kind of like almost like another way to think of the dark side of the light chasers is where there's this like, well, that's clearly your problem because you have not done the mindset work. Oh my God, please. You don't know how much furious this makes me. So I will say that the year that I started uh, training in EFT was in 2002. The same year in 2002, I joined a spiritual community called Centers for Spiritual Living, which is based on religious science, which is a new thought metaphysical church. And I started on this path where on weekends when I'd be going to EFT, I'd be tapping on all of this negative stuff I had. And then when I was a part of my spiritual community, I was learning spiritual mind treatment, which is a form of affirmative prayer, and going into a four-year training program to become a licensed spiritual practitioner. I became a practitioner in both modalities the same year as well. It was five, wow. five years in, okay? I had been training in EFT for five years and I started tapping with other people and I had uh, gone through four years of training and a year in internship to become a licensed spiritual practitioner. So that happened at the same exact time. I was leading a split personality because I was had practitioner tapping clients and I had 
um, licensed practitioner clients for spirituality. And eventually, and by the way, my license as a licensed spiritual practitioner says I'm not allowed to do any other modality except prayer. But guess what? EFT <laughs> is a form of prayer. That's that's exactly true. So mm-hmm. what I started doing was realizing that both of those worlds needed to come together, that EFT served humanness, that EFT took the human experience and all of these big, huge feelings that I didn't know what to do with and made them uh, manageable, made it livable, made me be able to sleep at night, made me be able to digest my food, that I needed that. But I also needed inspiration and vision and imaginings of the future and changing self-image and changing those beliefs that I had about myself and and becoming what I'd always wanted to become. And so at some point, I threw out my two business cards. I merged my practices together and I open and close my sessions with affirmative prayer. So I start with bringing my me together with that person spiritually. Then we look at the humanness. We tap on and look at the blocks that we carry. And then at the end, I do a longer affirmative prayer to put in the positive opposite of this what we've just cleared and the spaciousness that we've created. I want to implant it with fresh new seeds. So I think it's really important to do our own work when we have high reactivity with other people. It also does not mean that I'm not going to have a conversation, set a boundary, or say what I need to say. I am a truth teller. I don't get invited to a lot of parties probably because of that. I say the uncomfortable things. I can't help it. The elephant in the room is always very obvious to me. The elephant is always tapping me on its shoulder with its trunk, making me say something. So I do mind my tr- mind my triggers. So when I'm very activated by someone, I do do processing. I do do tapping. I do radical forgiveness work. I do do shadow work on it. I look at what my part is in it. And there's usually something, even if it's something really small, it could be a wound within me that was drawing that experience and and that wound is seeking healing. And that's why I drew that experience to me. So I do that work. And then there are times I've had to end relationships, call somebody up and have an uncomfortable conversation, but I do the inner work first so that then I'm coming with clarity and I'm coming clean when I'm uh, having a conversation with someone about a behavior or wound or something that happened between us. Well, and I think that, you know, there is a difference between having like legitimate grievances and being upset about something and losing and just losing it and having emotional meltdown with somebody. And it's sort of like we can, if we are doing the work, then we can come to a situation with a lot more grace, with a lot more diplomacy, with a lot more kindness and yeah. be like, you know what? This is not working for me. Go, you know, like, God bless you, but I'm not going to put up with your crap is really different than, you know, than attacking somebody. And so I love that you really are are distinguishing, like, look at your stuff and then set your boundary. Well, even if it's just, even if it's just taking that anger and giving it a healthy outlet, yeah. you know, I, 
was someone who only felt anger up until my 30s. It was the only emotion I could experience. Mm. I filled with rage, filled with rage. Now, underneath the rage, grief, sadness, heartbreak, all of that. But the only emotion I felt comfortable feeling and expressing was anger. And so for me, it's very important for me to have healthy ways of distinguishing the fire of my own anger that's not harmful to anyone else and is not harmful to me. It's not harmful to my liver and gallbladder. It's not harmful to myself. I don't want to, I spent too many years marinating in the, my own bitterness and resentment. Mm. I no longer want to be in that place. I no longer, no longer want to be pickled by my own bitterness and my own anger. Mm. And so dissipating anger and having really healthy anger release tools are good for everyone. You know, and I also want to say there's a lot of blaming that happens in spiritual communities. There's a lot of, uh, it's also happens in cults. Let's call it what it is. When you try to confront the leader or people around the leader and say, this is not okay. And they turn around and say, well, you're not doing your practices. Well, you're not really doing your forgiveness work. Well, did you pray about this first? This isn't my stuff. This is your stuff. That is an abuse of power that happens a lot. And if you experience a lot. That, run, run screaming in, in the other direction. It is so, um, it is so damaging when that is done to someone, but it's a way that people stay in power. And I also want to say for spiritual people everywhere, we've got to get better at conflict resolution. We just way better at conflict resolution. Yeah. It's imperative. Okay. There are times I have thrown the baby out with the bathwater. There are were times in my in my history that I rejected friends and ghosted them and abandoned people because I wasn't able to do healthy confrontation and conflict resolution and lost out. Mm-hmm. And, and all of us are flawed people leading spiritual experiences. We're not here to be perfect. We're here to grow. We're here to heal. And we're here here to be a healing force for others. It's going to get messy. We're going to step on each other's toes. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to say something that someone misinterprets the, the other way. A lot of times I think conflicts are misinterpretations. They're not even what really is ca- the person thinks is happening. Yes, 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 and yes. So- and so being able to honor ourselves by embracing our flaws and being able to call someone up and say, I'm really sorry. I think I really screwed up here. Um, you know, you came in and I was feeling really insecure and I said this and I felt I'm so embarrassed that I did that. And, you know, how can I make this right with you? Like, we can own our stuff. And when we do that, we bring light into our own darkness. And most of the time, like you had said, people really do embrace it. Mm-hmm. People really are open to that because they feel that it's true. Yeah. Where if you come across with a, a mask on, they feel that and they'll react to that instead. Absolutely. So Chris, I told you I'd come to this point where I was going to say, I can't believe how fast the time has gone by. And I really, I mean, I always say this and I always mean it. I really can't believe how fast the time has gone by. So we're just getting towards the top of the hour right now. And I want to be sure you have a chance to say, like, if there's anything else that just feels 
super, super, super important for you to share. For anyone out there who was ever ridiculed, rejected, excluded, not accepted, um, left out, all the different variations of that, I want you to know that you've never been left out by spirit. You've never been left out by the energy, the consciousness of life that created you and that you are made of good stuff and that your differences are gifts. You are here on purpose and you are here for a purpose. And so what I want to say to you is, is that you are loved and that if you can just be open to that idea that love can break through all of our facades and all of our self-criticisms and all of our terrible ideas about ourselves and can show us how to love ourselves as we are loved. And so I hope for everyone listening that you'll open your heart and allow that in. And, you know, if this concept speaks to you, I can't tell you how much I cried through the writing of this book because I'm revealing so much more, including talking about my weight publicly, which is something mm -hmm. I have never, ever done before. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of the last threshold, the last secret, although it's not too secretive. <laughs> it's a very obvious difference, but yeah. it's something that's been untalkable about and unmentionable about. And so part of my healing has been going into the stories about that for myself and, and not just that, but lots of other ways. And there's also lots of fun things and there's really great illustrations and there's all kinds of practical, helpful tips and things that you can do uh, to really start moving in the direction of being the trailblazer you came here to be. Ah. Uh. Everything you're saying, Chris, thank you so much. Okay, so you know what we do now. We do a little bit of a time travel where we go back in time and we send a message back to, I think you and I've done this before, but because I do believe that podcasts exist outside of time, people will be listening to this for years. And uh, I believe we can broadcast a message backwards. So what message does younger Chris need to hear who are we sending it back to? How old is she? And what are you going to tell her? Like, we are going to literally send her a broadcast. We're going to send her a lifeline from here. We're going to go back and, and like broadcast it back to her. Uh, what's coming up is age five, probably an entrance into schooling. Mm -hmm. What I want to say to little Chris is you're always going to be too big. Your body, your brain, your bravery. And the biggest thing about you is your heart. And you are going to shine anyway. You are going to embrace all of it. And you're going to take your big, badass boldness out into the world. And you are going to help so many people who really need it. And the suffering that you've been through is not in vain. And you will recognize that you are made of love itself and that love has never abandoned you. And there is so much joy and beauty and wisdom and grace ahead for you in every way beyond what you could ever imagine. Okay. 
Final question. How do people get in touch with you? Obviously, there will be, there is going to be, there's a link for the, or we'll have, we'll have a link for the book in the show notes. <laughs> Probably not the day it goes out. Although maybe actually we'll have the link for the book in the show notes, but how do people get in touch with you? ChrisFerraro.com. Uh, you can find me on social media. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram and I'm trying to be bold like you and get up on TikTok. So by the time this airs, hopefully I'll have some stuff up on TikTok. So look for me on social media, follow me, friend me. I love all of that. And you can go to my website and sign up for my newsletter. And if you purchase the book and you go to yourdifferenceisyourstrength.com, all of the journal questions and resources have been turned into multimedia uh, extravaganza of absolutely 100% free resources to go along with the book and you can access them there. Wonderful. Oh, Chris, this conversation has been so delicious. Thank you so much for just bringing your light and your big, beautiful heart to this conversation. Thank you for just bringing your truth, your inspiration and for giving us hope. And one of my takeaways from this too is that we can thrive, we can shine, and we can succeed in this world, even if we're still a work in progress. As a yeah. matter of fact, in some ways, it's the only way we're going to thrive and shine is by giving ourselves permission to be a work in progress because everything else is masking and right. that doesn't work. That's and, right. That's yeah. right. Thank you so much, Jen. I mean, you know, as I said, there's been some bullying within our field, but that's never been the case with you. Mm. Always just shown up and supported each other 100%, supported one another's books and projects, you know, shared it with the generosity of our own spirits. You know, that's the flip side of all of this, that those of us that are misfits, guess what? We've got a, a beautiful tribe of people that are our people that are in their own weirdness, love our weirdness. And so thank you for being a part of that for me and always giving me a safe place to land and always knowing that um, I can trust you. And thank you always for just being behind me in everything I do. I got you, baby. And I, this is a really, you guys, this is an amazing book. Go out and get yourself a copy. Listen, you know, download the audio, but go listen to the audio book. And hear Chris sharing this powerful, powerful information. And um, go check out her website, chrisferraro.com. And, you know, generosity is contagious. I highly recommend if you know somebody who's got a project, help them. Like, yeah. share it. Spread yeah. the word. This, yes. We are not in a competition. This is not, there's there's plenty for all of us. We, life is not enough. a pie. Yeah. yeah. More There's than more than enough. Every one of us. Absolutely. Yeah. Share, yeah. share the good word wherever you can. Share the good word wherever you can. Press, press. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. As we come to the end of this episode, I'd love to hear what you're taking from this show. Please jump over to empathicmasteryshow.com to leave your comments. In the show notes, you'll find a link to grab your copy of My Empathic Safety Guide, Three Basics for Finding Calm in the Eye of the Storm. And while you're there, please subscribe and follow this show. And thank you for your help sharing this show with the people who need it. 
Please help me to spread the word and send this podcast to friends or family members who need support living as highly sensitive empathic people. Then join me again when the next Empathic Mastery show airs. Okay, one last time. Hop over to EmpathicMasteryShow.com for your empathic safety guide. And until next show, shine on. We need you and your gifts here on this planet. So please don't judge your empathic rainbow by colorblind standards.